Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is Paul Allinger, your, your host. You're your host. It's a great day to be alive, and I'm happy you've chosen to spend some of it with me. Won't you be my neighbor? I've got a great conversation with you today, for you, not with you, for you today, with Samantha Berry. She's the one I had the conversation with. You and I are not actually having a conversation. Anyway, Samantha Berry is the editor-in-chief of Glamour, and she's amazing. She's hilarious, and I'll tell you a lot more about her in just a minute. But before we get to that, I want to remind you that if you want to listen to 29 minutes of amazing comedy by a semi-articulate middle-aged white guy, (laughs) that's me, you should check out my new comedy EP, Alive on the Upper West Side, in which I discuss the hilarious topics of data privacy, Chick-fil-A, and why carrots are important to my marriage. Not in that way, you weirdo. I have that written out. You can find it on iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or pretty much anywhere you find audio content on the web, including Russian piracy sites. I've made it, you guys. The people in the Ukraine and the former Soviet Union states have already pirated my stuff. I'm proud of myself. And I know the Ukraine and Russia are separate countries. Okay, listen, I'm just thinking about the risk game board. And anyway, okay. My guest this week is Samantha Berry. She is the editor-in-chief of Glamour, where she's responsible for setting the voice and mission of the publication. As a young woman in Ireland, Sam once dreamed of being a war correspondent. Her early work in journalism took her all over the world, including stints in Nigeria, Burma, Pakistan, Iraq, Papua New Guinea, I think I'm saying that right, and many other turbulent locations where she worked for the BBC, Intermedia, and the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Lucky for us here in the States, she came to America in 2014 to head up social media for CNN, and she came to Atlanta a lot, and she likes Atlanta. You'll you'll hear more about that. Last year, she began her stint at Glamour after being recruited by the legendary Anna Wintour, longtime editor-in-chief of Vogue. Miss Wintour calls Sam fearless, the perfect editor for a new, more ambitious era of Glamour's future. I spoke to Sam last week in the Condé Nast offices in New York City where we talked about her career, how fashion magazines coexist with consumerism, how Irish and Americans' attitudes toward money differ, and of course, where one can get the best pint of Guinness Stout in New York City. And without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with the multi-talented Samantha Berry. I took about three guys out individually, and I fed them (laughs) some drink, and I asked them what they were getting paid, and two of the three of them told me. Mm -hmm. And that knowledge really anchored my negotiations when I went back in and for my contract. And it honestly helped me ask for more because without that knowledge, I think I would have been reluctant in asking what I asked for, but I knew how to ask for more because I knew what the other guys were on. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Samantha Berry, yeah. a.k.a. Sam Berry, yeah. Yeah. welcome to Crazy Money. <laughs> Thanks for having me. When you were 12 years old, mm. young girl in Ireland, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, when I was 12 years old, I would definitely wanted to be in media. I wanted to actually be a news reporter, war correspondent, news reporter. I did, and this is dates previous to being 12, during the 1990 World Cup in Ireland, we were in the World Cup for the first time. It was a mighty time for our nation. And I would watch the matches with my parents and my brother and sister with a pen and a piece of paper and a notebook. And after the match was over, 
after we'd watched it together on TV, I'd go away and I'd do a sports report and come back down and, and report what we had all watched for my parents. So I always loved media and news and information. I think at the time I was really motivated by TV news. There was a lot of mass, really, really influential female anchors in Ireland that have been around for decades and they're still on air. And they were the ones that were anchoring the evening news. And I think they, they were an inspiration for 12-year-old Samantha. Did you study broadcasting or journalism in university? I did. I, I did a degree in English and psychology, and then I did a master's in journalism. And then your career took you to some, your early career took you to some pretty interesting places. I know. Right off the bat. I know. Well, I started in radio in Ireland, which is like overnights and doing the news for four people that are listening at 4am in the morning. <laughs> so very proud of that. And also terrified because it was my first job. Yeah. And being one of two people in the newsroom overnight, because you do those on social hours. Worked at RTE, which is like the Irish equivalent to BBC, it's mm-hmm. a state broadcaster. Went to another radio station, graduated to daytime hours. and um, <laughs> That must have been quite know, liberating. It was, it was great. Actually, when I went from RTE, and I talked about this a little bit earlier to a group of students that came to see me, when I went from my first job to my second job, I actually took a pay cut because I wanted to do journalism I was more proud of. When I was in my first job, I was one of the younger women and I was getting the fluffy kicker stories and I would be sent to the science fair to talk to the kids. And I really wanted to do some meteor stories. So in order to do them, I think I moved to a different radio station. And I also took a significant pay cut. And I remember thinking about it at the time, going, this is, even in my early 20s, this is going to be hard, but it's a longer term trajectory I'm looking at. Right. Did you feel like on the overnights that you could learn and make mistakes yes. and nobody would, nobody would notice? You know, I thought I could learn and make mistakes and nobody could notice, but every time I mispronounced somebody's word, there was a letter that came in. So somebody, <laughs> people are, I think I absolutely, and you know, that's one of the things I say to younger editors or any in any industry, sometimes in the unsociable hours, you can really find your feet mm-hmm. and you can, you can make the mistakes and it's not glaringly prime time in whatever industry you're in and you get a bit more leeway to to kind of find your feet. Today we call that podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be mispronouncing plenty of words yeah. today. Yeah, good. I'm about to get to my first one. Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea. Yeah. PNG, you can call it for PNG. sure. Yeah. I was in Papua New Guinea with, for ABC, which is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And I went to work on a radio project initially. So work with 18 different radio stations locally in Papua New Guinea, which is honestly one of the most fascinating places in the world. It has, I think, 800 different languages. Wow. Parts of Papua New Guinea and people that were only discovered in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, it has... Let's convert them. I know. I know. Send them some missionaries. <laughs> right? It was interesting because it had been a colony of in Australia for years. So they had the infrastructure of media already there. But Australia had left in the 70s. And I think I went in with ABC on a project that was really to work with the radio stations on their editorial output. And I'd spent a good few years at this stage in, in radio. But when I arrived, smart like phones arrived, not even smartphones, like dumb phones arrived into this country where radio was king. And while I was there, phones became king. And mm-hmm. so I really quickly adapted because I was a younger journalist, was a younger reporter, to teaching people how to use phones for reporting and engaging with their audience and how to get on Facebook, and which was newish at the time. This is 06, something like that? Yeah, like 06, 07 maybe actually. Mm-hmm. And it really, that kind of ch- changed the path of my career because I'd gone to do a radio project. It quickly ended up being was this digital social project, which nobody was really doing. But because I was in the field 
with these journalists and they just got a phone in their hands, mm-hmm. which was the most exciting thing in the world. In Papua New Guinea, they jumped landlines. None of them had landlines. A lot of them didn't have TV. So they went from having radio to having this mobile phone that could do a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think it was fascinating to see that firsthand. And it's something that I saw not only in Papua New Guinea, but when I worked in, in Burma, in Myanmar with BBC, I worked in it again there. I went back about five or six times for the BBC in around 2012. And they were coming out of cloaca censorship and really rudimentary media. And then they got ATMs and mobile phones and it changed the media landscape. And I really saw a lot of that with the, when I was there for the BBC. So in both those countries, I learned a lot about the kind of growth of media and the change of how people consume media in a really condensed amount of time because of lucky enough to be there at that time when things were happening. Your early career took you to Nigeria, Pakistan, Iraq, Myanmar, as you mentioned. Were you drawn to these areas because you wanted to prove something or you just wanted to learn at the fastest rate? What was going on? I was really interested in particular in some of those places how people reported during conflict. And I was really interested in understanding how and really finding out how journalism is a pure passion for a lot of people, right? I'm not talking about somebody that works in the UK or the US and, you know, has an okay wage and kind of does their beat. I'm talking about people in northern Nigeria that put their life on the line, local journalists for very, very little pay to tell the stories of their communities. Same in Burma, same in Pakistan. I was fascinated by really working with local journalists and understanding how they could do their job under those situations. And I think once I had worked on one of those projects, I was really drawn to figuring out what was happening in other areas. And also, I think one of the overhangs is I grew up in Ireland in the 90s and it was not so far out of the troubles. And I was always interested in reporting in a conflict area. So when I started reporting and working, it, we were coming off the back of a peace process in Ireland. And But a lot of when I studied journalism and when I was really interested in the history of my country, a lot of the journalism I was studying was steeped in conflict. So when I got the opportunity to work in Pakistan and northern Nigeria and places where there was conflict, I always... F- felt not the same, but a little synergy with what I had learned about Ireland's conflict reporting. Did you have a long-term goal, career goal in mind at the time? I don't think I looked that far ahead, you know what I mean? Like, especially not in my early 20s. I knew I wanted to be a storyteller. I think I wanted to be a war correspondent at one stage, especially early on in my career. That's a pretty badass career. (laughs) No, right? And I did, like, I honestly think I I got a a better side of it, which I, I actually got to work with people that were truly people that were working in conflict areas that were local journalists. And I got to see an insight in a way that you can't ever be if you're parachuting in from London and New York into like an area. You know, I would, yeah, I definitely had editor in chief as somewhere on my like wish list of jobs. So a decade and a half later, you're in that seat. Mm. Does the experience working in these areas of conflict give you perspective to handle the pressure that you have in your current job? (laughs) <laughs> you know what it does do? I have a very international sensibility, right? Like I'm an, an Irish person, Irish immigrant working in America. I have spent a lot of time in different countries. When we're telling stories of women around the world, 
um, we're telling stories for a US audience, but I'm really interested in the stories of women around the world. And I think I bring that into my job a lot. So, for example, when we planned Women of the Year last year, uh, one of the women we honoured was Manal Al-Sharif, she's a Saudi Arabian woman who started the Saudi initiative for women to drive. She was the woman that first uploaded that YouTube clip of a woman driving and really started that whole thing. When I look and when I think about glamour, I do it, you know, I'm always thinking from an international point of view of what stories we can tell. Early on, one of the stories which really intersected this beautiful, you know, this history I have in storytelling in, in other places and kind of with the glamour core was we sent a reporter to Cape Town to do a story on how a woman's beauty routine changes when a when a city is going through a drought. So there's this was in the, a national story that was happening. Cape Town was running out of water. And it was getting a little bit of attention and, you know, people were recovering it. But I think it was about two or three weeks after I started this job. And I was like, well, why, we need to cover this from a glamour lens, right? And that's what I'm thinking about all the time. And beauty and fashion is a big part of what we do in this brand. But we, when we asked the reporter to go to Cape Town, figure out how women actually have a beauty routine when they have no water. And it was a fascinating intersection of my old life, which is like international reporting, and this new life, which is like women's lifestyle and women's storytelling. And I think it was kind of a nice example of how they came together early on in my job here. But it kind of makes this much larger situation more relatable on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's exactly. Kind of, it's where the rubber meets the road. So what does an editor-in-chief do? Well, an editor-in-chief today is probably different as a more varied and more challenging, I would say, role than an editor-in-chief of decades ago. An editor-in-chief today is super responsible for the editorial direction of the brand. What do you stand for? What are your values? What do you care about? What are the things that you're really going to go after? I think that's always been an editor-in-chief's job, and I think it's it's as important, or if not more important now, because we have a lot of younger consumers that will only consume media that they think reflects their values or is an extension of themselves. So for me, that's a big part of the job. What's our North Star? For us, it's our mission statement is for women a substance with something to say, and we're really about a safe place of telling women's stories, whether that's fertility or finances or the choices they make in beauty and fashion or being inclusive and diverse, that's a big part of what we're doing. You know, a big part of editor-in-chief's job is going out and talking about the brand, representing the brand. My job kind of spans across digital and social and when we're doing print on occasion and a big event like Women of the Year. So it is a very varied, very, very job. Are you responding to the zeitgeist or are you helping to create it? I think it's a bit of both. Honestly, I think you can't be dictated by, you know, what you think will scale or what you think people will click on. As an editor, you need to make decisions on things that sometimes won't scale, but are really important. So for us, you know, and sometimes you're surprised when they do scale and you're really happy. Like for us, there's a couple of things we do that are just the core of our brand, whether it's how we cover the 2020 politics through the lens of women, whether it's our coverage of women's reproductive rights. And then you have things that you, you're not sure that will scale, but they ultimately do. And they're really important for your brand. We've done a lot this year around fertility. Our audience are women in their 30s. And what we've found in those conversations we've been having and done a lot of essays and as told to's is that these women, both our audience and these women that we end, ended up writing for us, just had so much they wanted to say about miscarriage, about fertility, about IVF, about egg freezing. And what we did initially, we wanted to do that because we thought it was important for the brand, but it ended up being actually a big success for us. So it's a matter of gut versus data and finding that, that it's a balance. a balance of both, right. yeah. yeah. 
So there's a scene in a Sex in the City episode, or maybe it was the movie, and I apologize for my very dated references, That's fine. but I'm a middle-aged man. I love a bit of reruns of Sex and City. When I'm a middle-aged man. Carrie Bradshaw is lamenting her financial troubles, uh-huh. and then she realizes she owns $30,000 worth She's- of Manola Blahniks, <laughs> right? What role should magazines and taste-making publishers mm-hmm. play in shaping the way America thinks about money and material goods? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So I'll, uh, I'm going to step back a little bit and say, like, I came into this world uh, 18 months ago and was very clear with the fashion team and our editorial team, our fashion is about being accessible and diverse, and we're really going to do a lot of coverage of sustainability. So we, you know, we talk to the Rent the Runway women a lot. We mm-hmm. talk about sustainable fashion. We also talk about accessible fashion. Like, uh, Glamour is not a title that it's it's meant to be super, super aspirational when it comes to those things. But we also, on the flip side of that, have a very frank, we have, have been having a huge frank discussion with women about finances, about how they spend, how they invest, how they negotiate and you know what I would say is like everybody can treat themselves but understand how that fits into your whole spending and money picture as a whole because I think that's really important we've taken my first print issue as an editor-in-chief was the money issue I've been very open about talking to women about money we partnered with CNBC which is kind of maybe an unusual partnership for some people CNBC and Glamour but it's because we've been having these conversations around women and we want women to be able to treat themselves, but we want them to be able to do it in a way that makes sense for them, their overall financial picture. If I have this right, you had an issue that featured clothing only $500 and, and under. Yeah. yeah. Well, my first day here, I walked into a run-through and I think the first, as somebody that hadn't come from a fashion background, run-through is when you have like racks of clothes and the stylists and the mood board and the photographer and we were picking clothes for the April cover and the first question I asked was, how much is that? And now when <laughs> and now when they come, and it wasn't necessarily a question they'd been asked before. And now when they come in, they have post-it notes of how much everything costs on the clothes because it's a good Irish girl, that's the first question I ask when I look at something, how much it costs. And I think I had done so much research in getting, before getting this job and who the glamour woman is, how much she spends on, on fashion and where she is in her life that it was realistic for me to put everything less than $500 in especially in that money issue if we're going to talk if we're going to have a frank conversation with women about money we're going to show them really 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 great fashion under $500 so how do you make the topic of money interesting and accessible sexy Sexy. um yeah I know (laughs) no that's my job that's what I'm doing (laughs) sexy money uh so here's what one of the things we that's what I should have called it damn it um (laughs) see if that url right i know right trademark so one of the things that we did first of all i think you have to feel like you're bringing people into the conversation Uh so one of the things that we did as a brand is we started uh we really took this concept of a can i swear yeah, sure. Uh, like a fuck off fund uh-huh. and really make that a fuck off fund, yeah. And make it a call to action. So a fallback fund or a F off fund is really making sure that women and men in America have a, a bucket of like a cushion, right? Six months so they can leave a bad job, a bad relationship, a bad lease. We'd done a big survey on the lead up to this and it was really disappointing and honestly kind of disparaging the amount of women that stay in jobs that they don't like because they can't afford to leave, that stay in relationships that they don't want to be in because they can't afford to leave. The amount of Americans that couldn't deal with a $1,000 unexpected expense. It's it's insane. It's crazy. So we really wanted, it. it, you can lay that all out and we can be all catastrophic, but rather than doing just that, we wanted to 
say, here's here's what you tangibly need to do. So we did the call to action of the, the fallback fund and we've had so many people reach out to us about the, they since reading that, they have like, they've really been, really, that's where they have invested in their time. Like, do I have, can I take away that that expense this month so I can put some money into my fallback fund? So that's one thing we did. As an editor, personally, I was very honest with about my complicated relationship with money, about the times that I lived paycheck to paycheck in the, my 20s, that I wasn't as confident as money as I am in my 30s. In the lessons that I learned about, you know, I talked about the Salary Whisperer Network, which is something that... We, that what's that about? Yeah. So the Salary Whisperer Network is, we did a story about it, and I, it, it was hooked off a personal experience. So when I moved over, I went from the BBC to CNN, UK and US wages differ, especially mm-hmm. in media. And so I really didn't negotiate for myself to, on my first contract at CNN. And the second time when I was going into my contract negotiations, before I went in, I needed to understand what like the EPs, executive producers and the VPs were making. And so I took about three guys out individually, mm-hmm. white guys, and I fed them <laughs> some drink and I asked them what they were getting paid. And White guys love drinks. Yeah, two of the three of them told me. Mm-hmm. And that knowledge really anchored my negotiations when I went back in and for my contract. And it honestly helped me ask for more because without that knowledge, I think I would have been reluctant in asking what I asked for, but I knew how to ask for more because I knew what the other guys were on. And so the Salary Whisper Network is this concept. It doesn't mean to tell every Tom, Dick and Harry and put it on Facebook what you earn. It means that you have a trusted group of friends and family in your industry, men and women, that you feel comfortable sharing where you are financially and you have a network where they can give you a litmus test. Are you really getting your market value for what you're worth, mm-hmm. right? Well, I know somebody in this place that's on that similar level, has similar experience. I think you're really being underpaid or you know what, you negotiated really well for yourself because knowledge is power. Like we tell women all the time to go in to negotiate for themselves because women should and have to ask for more because they don't honestly ask enough. And I know that as a manager of men and women, my time at CNN, that the guys would always ask. The data bears it out. Yeah, yeah. and the data bears it out. And nobody's going to give you money unless you ask for it, right? But asking for it is is one part of negotiations. Knowledge is a huge part of it. And vision is the third part. But the knowledge of knowing what's your market value? What are other people in the industry? What are other people in the company? What are they getting paid? Like, if you're swimming in the dark with your negotiations, you really put yourself in the black back foot. So the Salary Whisperer Network for us is really open, opening yourself up to have that little group. And honestly, to get that information back, you got to be vulnerable and give it out. Like sure. you've got to, it's a sharing, it's a sharing community. Quid pro quo, Dr. Lecter. Yeah. There's also sites like Payscale that have aggregated millions of people's personal income based on industry position, mm-hmm. tenure and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if there is, uh, I've looked at those. I think, honestly, especially if you're in an industry where you can talk to people in the same industry, Mm -hmm. you're going to get some better data face-to-face with people if you can. Sure. That's interesting. So since you brought up negotiating for a position, you hire a whole bunch of people. Yeah. Somebody comes into you and says, I know my colleague is making more. Yeah. How do you respond to that? You know, I try to democratize, like I I really as a manager try to figure out how much everybody is paying and and, and really make it as fair as possible. That is, if I'm personally out there advocating for other people, that's a really important thing for me. Here's the thing. First of all, pay is not the only thing you can negotiate for. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I learned in early in my career is I, you know, when I was at CNN, one of the things I negotiated for was extra education. So I went on an executive fellowship and I learned a lot on that or 
you know, for some people, a title is important or uh, the hours that they work or work at home. So, yes, absolutely pay. And I want you to get the most that you can is important. But as a manager, it's also we don't have an unshakable money tree that we can just give money to everybody that wants it. Right. And you have to be open and honest and transparent and, 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 and really explain you're at this level. Here's where your growth opportunity is. Here's what, what I see down the road. But it's never easy. Right. Like it's never I'm on the flip side because I'm always advocating for it. But I also am dealing with it when, you know, people absolutely come and negotiate with me. But for me, I think one of the things that I have told my team here and, and other places is don't come in with an expectation for negos. Don't you're asking for money should never be because Jim Bob is on this, <laughs> right? Bob, like that yeah. should not be the source of your, your thing. Or I've been here for X amount of months. When I go into a negotiation or when I talk about people coming into negotiations, I look at it in three ways, right? What have you done? Like give me a litany of everything you've done, either for me or previous companies if you're coming in. Like list out why you're bloody brilliant, right? Mm -hmm. That's number one. Number two is, yeah, understand your market value. Here's what I'm worth. Here's why I'm valuable. Here's, you know, kind of the ballpark that I know I'm in or could be in. And then the third one is vision. And honestly, most people forget about the vision part of it. And they come in with the first two parts and it falls apart by part three. But as a manager or somebody that's like either hiring, I want somebody that's not just like has coming in with like, this is what I want. Give it to me. It's like, this is a mutual agreement here, right? Here's what I'm looking for. But here's what I'm bringing to the table. This is the vision I have for you, the company, us as a team, whatever it is. A lot of people forget the the third part and it it honestly lets them down in negotiations an expression of commitment to the future exactly yeah it's funny i had the exact same conversation with a friend of mine who hires a lot of millennials in the finance mm -hmm. industry and he says on their year anniversary they walk in asking for more money yeah it's not a time thing like i think it's so interesting and it's sometimes it's not a title thing right like in this new industry of like startups versus legacies like hmm. somebody could be like EVP at a startup it doesn't mean that you you have to be EVP where you are right. I mean if you know what your growth is that's really important and I think the onus is on managers and companies to show people where their growth trajectory is and sometimes you know like I have done previously in the past you'll have to leave in order to grow and yes. you have to move in order to grow let's talk about media in general is the old boy network dying off in this industry I've never, I mean, maybe I'm delusional, but the old boy network has never been something that I have come across in an extensive way. I grew up in media in, in England and Ireland. And when I came to New York, honestly, women have been monumental in my career and my choices. Like my boss at CNN was a woman, Meredith Artley, amazing woman. My boss here is a media powerhouse, Anna Wintour, so... I have not, uh, and maybe, uh, maybe I'm just not seeing it, but I'm not seeing the old boys network. I'm seeing a lot of women lifting each other up and that's in media. And I think you're seeing that more and more. Like I'm, I know a lot of the women in broadcast and the amount of cheering that they do for each other is, is fantastic. What have you learned from your mentors in, in the media business? Oh God, that's what a great the, question. What are the most valuable lessons um, you've learned from your, from your mentors in the media business? I think I've learned how to be a leader and be decisive in your decisions and also be transparent and put your hand up when you've got got it wrong and I think women are way better doing that than men sometimes like what? yeah I know right oh my god that's so gender sexist. stereotypes but they, I think they are right open to you know and I think yeah being very very assertive in making a decision and mm. being yeah, that's one of the things being kind uh and also I think one early 
early on, I, you can't fix everybody's problems. And I think <laughs> sometimes people just want to be listened to. And I learned that from one of my bosses, Meredith. She was like, you keep trying to fix. People come in to complain about something and you're instantly trying to fix the solution when the reality is all they want you to do is listen to them. And I think that was early on. When it, I was like, oh, yeah, that person just wants to be heard. I don't have to be, I used to at the start be like, okay, how can I fix this? I need to do this. Let me send off this email. Let me yeah. fix this. Sometimes it doesn't need to be fixed. They just need to be heard. I, I You know, I, my, my own shortcomings have, as a manager probably <laughs> correlate to my own shortcomings as a husband. Yeah. <laughs> where, the, the, where I hear somebody who wants to be heard yeah. and I'm trying to fix the problem instead of just sitting right? back and listening. <laughs> just listen, they want to have a rant and say, okay, I heard. And she listened to me and he listened to me. And I think... Yeah, some managers overlook that, like, they just want to be heard sometimes. You can't fix everything. You don't have an unlimited budget and unlimited time in the day and unlimited everything. And Sometimes people just want to be heard. Men shouldn't be allowed to manage until they've been married for 10 years. <laughs> I think that's, that's a new rule I just come up with. What kind of work environment do you want to create for your team? For me, it's really about, like, fostering young talent, right? Like, I want people to feel like they're heard. And I think we do a lot of like, I'm constantly calling on the younger editors for ideas. Like they know, like a 21 year old on my team, when I'm asking about dating and relationships for 20, she knows it. I need her. <laughs> I need her to tell me. Or when we're talking about fashion, like the, it was so interesting. Like even just the, the basic, we were talking about the beauty awards recently. We just did a huge thing around beauty awards. Big, It's a big event for us every year. And this year, by and far, like skincare was the thing that people wanted to read, share. They bought a lot of skincare off us. And I was like, I turned around to him and I was like, can somebody explain this to me? Like when you think beauty, you think makeup, like why skincare? And one of the younger, newer members of the staff, who I think is in the very early 30s or 20s, sorry. She was like, because we care about it younger now. Skincare mm -hmm. used to be this thing that you would kind of get, start getting worried about when you're 30s and some crow's feet started happening. But late teens really care about what their skin looks and feels like in a way that like our generation didn't start caring about skincare because skincare felt like a more of an older mm -hmm. person thing to care about we cared about beauty and you know makeup and hair and now and it was so her her insight was so interesting and i i think so i want a foster environment where everybody on the team feels heard and and contributes and honestly i've said this before like i want you know, I imagine that some of the people that work for me now will be taking over the world or I'll be working for them someday. And that's the kind of environment that I want to foster. My dermatologist told me recently that I need to, quote, step up my sunblock game, bro. Sunblock is really important. Well, yes. I'm factor 50 every day, like SPF 50. Yes. I have very Irish skin. God so I'm going out in the winter fully, fully covered. 23 and me suggests that I have it also. Yeah. Speaking of that, what has surprised you, if anything, about how Americans relate to money? That's a great question. Be honest. Think, Come on, yeah, say it. Here's the thing. I think, you know, I grew up in an Ireland that was, I was a Celtic cub. Do you know what a Celtic cub is? I don't. So Ireland had gone from this quite poor country to a very prosperous country in a very short amount of time. It was called the Celtic Tiger. Oh, yeah, yeah. Money yeah. everywhere. I was a Celtic cub, which meant the second I got to university, they were handing out credit cards like it was like candy, right? And what was interesting is the generational shift because my parents' generation would not buy something on credit. They would not like that. You just don't do that. Land and property are like the cornerstone of any kind of asset in Ireland. Land is really important and owning a house is really important. And I'm the 
then become I was the Celtic Cub generation where they were handing out loans. People got 100% mortgages. People went into negative equity because they were taking the sensibility of owning property and land, but they were doing it in this very bougie kind of like, we all have money and there's loads of money to go around. And so what I say, I come from a country that has gone through a massive shift and kind of a recorrection now. And I think in America, yeah, there's probably more of a credit sensible culture than other countries like I think in a lot of European countries there's much less of a credit culture and I think but the positive is there's there's almost more of an openness like if you're in London Britain nobody's talking about money like it's very non-British to discuss it's very un-British to be talking about money right and I think at least with coming here that especially lately there's more of an openness to talk about money in a frank way the good the bad and the ugly Mm -hmm. when you meet a fellow adult in Ireland for the first time, do you ask, what do you do? No, that's a very American thing. No, it's a, I, maybe it's a New York thing. That is not your opener. It is a very American <laughs> opener. Like, what do you do? Like, it's very straight. Like, uh, what, what do you say? Well, my thing is, Where I. are your people? I know. How many centuries have you lived on your land? We I have mean, a like, chat what? about the weather. You yeah. start with the weather. Mm-hmm. You don't go in with that question straight away. It is, it's interesting. And when I moved to America, I was like, are they trying to define me immediately off my role? Because in Ireland, it's more about the stories and the conversations and, you know, you ease into it. I think it's, I think in Ireland, and it's a a very, uh, you'd get a a very kind of almost um, allergic reaction to somebody Mm. immediately coming in. The first thing they ask is what you do. But it's quite American to do that, isn't it? Is it very New York to do it? I don't know. I think it's very American. I think it's certain. We moved back to the Southeast. I've lived in New York twice, LA twice, San Francisco. and, And then I took my family back to where I grew up in Atlanta. Yeah. And there was this, where did you go to high school? I mean, and, that's ridiculous. Well, it was. it's kind of, you know, my argument to my wife was, it's not about them trying to find out yeah. who your people are, if you have yeah. any money. It's about who do we know in common? Yeah. What, what can we, it's it's an easy so way to- So in Ireland, get, we're a, related to everybody or we've made out with them. <laughs> so like, there's there's no there's no degrees of separation there. You don't need to put it down to your job or your high school. <laughs> like, everybody's related or has had, you know, it's something. But yeah, maybe, maybe that's it. I, I love Atlanta. I spent a lot of time there with CNN. Oh, yeah. Is Ireland a less materialistic society? Mm. It's probably different, right? Like, I think probably in America, it might be more about... Uh, these are g- sweeping generalizations, I will... I'm not like, afraid but, yeah. of those. It may be more about things. In Ireland, it's probably more about land and houses. Mm. You know what I mean? Property is a big... It, it's Materialistic property is still a big... It's a big thing in Ireland. It's not about the logo on your sweater. No. Ireland is more about property and travel. And here, it, it ta- materialism takes many different forms. Okay. On a scale of one to ten, please rate the following attributes of your job. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Meeting amazing people. Wait, one's what? Bad. And ten is really ten good. Ten is good. Okay. And this is not a cumulative score. Each okay. of these is a discrete rating. Okay. Meeting amazing people. Oh, ten. Mentoring smart young professionals. N- like eight or nine. So not as... Okay, never mind. I'm not going to analyze them. <laughs> no. Shaping converse, social conversation at scale. Nine. Making good money. Nine. Free clothes. That's lower down my list, like three or four. Okay, that's good. What other positive attributes would you tell me about your job if I asked you how you liked your job? But I would never do that because that would be I, rude. No, it's to- fine. You, I just, in a really cheesy way, like I love telling stories about ama- amazing women and 
we do that all day in video and social and women we're deep in planning of the women of the year which is honestly a highlight for me every year like last year we, I got to go on stage and honour Janelle Monet and Viola Davis and the Larry Nassau gymnast survivors and the Parkland girls and a 90 year old park ranger and you're just like oh my god I get to tell these stories of people you know and people you don't know and, and honoured them and I think that's without a shadow of a doubt my favourite part of the job What's most stressful about your job? I'd probably finances and business side of it, right? Like hitting the numbers. Yeah, like I think nobody necessarily goes into journalism and was like, I'm looking at Excel sheets and like PLs, but it's part of everybody's job in media now, especially at an executive level. And you can't expect it not to be part of your job. So is that the thing I think the the understanding and being good at the finance and the business side of it. I'm driven by the fact that the more money I have, the more stories I can tell. So it's kind of a juggle for me. And as, as Glamour's transitioned from a print publication to a purely digital world, you've diversified the way you can make money. How do yeah. you, is, that, is that a satisfying challenge for you? I like it. I think it, not only do you diversify the pie, there's also there's massive growth potential in the pie. So, you know, in the world of print advertising, there is adjacency ads and, you know, it is more of a limited type of revenue, right? And if you look at the world that we are living in now, Glamour, with events and social and digital, the pie comes from lots of different places, whether it's people buying tickets to a summit for Women of the Year, whether it is, you know, branded sponsored content on social whether it is, you know, somebody taking over a hub. There's lots of different ways. It's it's more of a challenge, but I think the pie is potentially bigger and has more growth potential. As you've climbed the ladder, have you personally kept your tastes and desires in check as you become more and more successful? Do you want to take grander vacations and wear nicer clothes? Or has it been, Have you? do you feel like I, you've done a good job of adjusting to that? You know, I think one of the things, it's interesting because we're, we're already, we're deep in conversations with women. And I think that relationship that they have with money is interesting is, you know, where you are, how much you spend. And interesting, where do you land in your friendship group, right? So, you know, if I'm earning more than my friends, am I going to be like, let's go on this extravagant holiday that mm -hmm. you can't afford <laughs> right. and it's going to put you in debt? No, I, I'm not going to do that. But when I get the opportunity to treat myself with something, you know, I think... I should be allowed to do that. I think one of the things that I have probably spent the most money on since I have moved up in my career have been experiences for my family. So mm. my family are like scattered around the world. My parents are in a farm in West Cork. My sister's in Sweden with her three kids and her husband, my brother, is with his partner and his seven-year-old. And so for me, actually, the treating is like putting somebody on a business class flight and oh, like my nice. parents and getting them to come over here. And mm -hmm. that for me is an extravagance I would have had like 10 years ago. And the ability to do that now makes me not only really proud, but I love those experiences. So it's not necessarily material things I kind of spend the extra bump on. It's more like I can put my parents on a business class flight and, you know, take them to the Lion King and do experiences with my nieces and nephews and get them over here and make it make it easier to kind of spend money on them than like I'm going to go out and I mean live in New York I don't want a car or anything so right. yeah so that's that's been kind of a nice thing to do as I've moved up in my career yeah as you've experienced greater success are you happier than you were when you were junior more junior one in thing career? that I and it's going back to that fallback fund like there was definitely times in my career where I was living paycheck to paycheck and I was a freelance journalist and I didn't know where the next bunch. That is really 
it's stressful, right? And so am I happier because I've got a cushion? Absolutely. And mm-hmm. that's why we call, t- tell every woman that she needs that cushion because honestly, that's security of knowing that if everything went wrong, I'd be okay for a while. Right. I think that that makes me happier than like, oh, I've got more money uh, because the insecurity of living paycheck to paycheck, which so many, I'm sure of people listening to this and I'm sure so many people in America have, that that's not good for your your wellness or your mental health either. No. And I think that's why rates of happiness flatten out as you get past right? just, you know, solvency. Yeah. And I, I mean, the, the richest, and I've said this a hundred times on this podcast, but the richest I ever felt was the day I paid off my student loans. Right. Because then I felt like I owned myself. And I think that's what you're trying to get to, the yeah. sense of empowerment. You know, you can be the best person once you take control of of, of your life. And finances is a big part yeah. of that. Like I bought a TV recently. I'd never bought a TV for, before. I had the previous TV I had. In, in When you're in Europe, most of the places you mm. rent are furnished, right? And the TV I'd had while I was in New York was I got in my friend's divorce because she didn't want to look at the telly anymore. Uh, true story. And so, but it, it was a bit out of date now. So I went and at I bought- At least somebody won. Yeah, I bought a TV and a soundbar and I was like, I actually called my sister on the way to buy that TV and I was like, I'm so happy that I don't need to worry about this purchase. Yeah. Like that comfort of like being able to go and buy a TV and be like, I don't have to worry that I'm going to have to change the next six months in order to buy this TV. And there's something quite, that's quite satisfying. I agree. Let's get to the lightning round. Okay. And you can expound where you feel like you okay, want to. Sorry. Who's your business hero? Oh God. Okay. Hold on. Let me think about this. I don't know if I have a business hero. Who's my business hero? You don't have to choose okay. between your two fabulous mentors. I know, right? No. But if you want to, yeah. Let's go I mean, ahead they, they are that. two. Yeah. I, I mean, I, two, my two female powerhouse bosses that I've had recently, the one I have now, Anna Wintour and Meredith Artley, they taught me a lot about business and editorial at the same time. They're really strong. So I, yeah, those two. What's it feel like when Anna Wintour calls you and says, I want you to come work for me? great like who wouldn't want to work for her right she knows everything <laughs> so you, I knew feel you, amazing. you got you're gonna learn a lot yeah great uh, uh but that wasn't one of the questions but okay what is your favorite font oh what's the glamour font i think it's kind of we have it it's a it's a personalized glamour font glamour font is my favorite glamour font that's the name of the font i i will find out the name from the creative director for you but it is a it's it's like a our own personalized font okay we'll get a custom font don't glamour. go looking for it on your um no, you in, can't in find your it word, in your word doc. Uh, right, okay. Uh, who's your favorite comedian? Oh, God. I'm going to say this is a kind of a rant. There's, there's an amazing writer called Lisa McGee who's written the series called uh, Dairy Girls. And she's fantastic. And Ashling B, another Irish comedian, uh, who's about to star in a Netflix series with Paul Rudd. She's mm. awesome. And Ali Wong, I'm a big fan of of late. She's big a, fans. She's amazing. Okay, Kardashian Jenners, icons of female empowerment or harbingers of the apocalypse? Uh, icons of female empowerment. We've been covering the business side of the Kardashian Jenner empire, and we're fascinated by the businesses of beauty that they have built and fashion. So we really look at them through that lens. What is your most elaborate indulgence? Travel. Best value restaurant in New York City? The Hudson Hound. It's a pub. It's got great Irish food. How's the wine there? Good. Most pubs have horrible wine that they leave out. It's not out bad actually for yeah. a pub. Like, yeah, yeah, it's really good. But the pint of Guinness is good. Nice. Who pours the best pint in New York City? Hudson Hound. Okay, there you go. Most expensive item in your closet? I bought a dress from Carolina Herrera for Women of the Year. 
And you know what? That was a huge event. And I had to take a minute to go, oh my God, am I spending this much money on a dress? And I did. And it's in my wardrobe and I absolutely love it. And it signifies a big night for Glamour for me. So yeah, that one. How many times have you worn it? The once I know. What am I going to do? Do you want to, do you have any event you want to wear to anything? I would love to. I would love to. We need to talk about that. If you had $25,000 that you had to spend on a holiday, where do you go? See, I love to travel. Okay, let me think. With 25,000. You know what? I'd probably like rent a villa in the south of France and like near a vineyard and bring a load of friends. Sounds amazing. When are we going? I know, right? 25,000 to donate to any charity. Which would it be? So I actually work with a lot of charities. So it would be around girl or girls education. I'm on the board of Room to Read, which is a charity that does uh, girls education. I just did a load of work with Concern, which is a huge global charity and actually went to Malawi with them. Uh, to see the work that they've been doing with women but it will be probably one of those and it will be around women and education. What accomplishment career or financial are you most proud of? I think probably like I think I'm really proud of getting to the position I'm in in, in a an untraditional route coming into you know New York is a hard place to make it sometimes but it feels pretty nice when you've when you're doing well. I think there's a song about that. I know, right? Frank Sinatra, he stole my line. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to mention before we log off here? Women of the Year is going to be uh, in November 10th mm-hmm. uh, and we have tickets for that. I think so. Coming to the back end of the year, we're deep in planning for something special around fashion for September. So stay tu- when's this out? Stay tuned for that. Uh, next week, actually. Okay, so we're, we're deep in September's big months for mm-hmm. everybody in this building. There's lots of planning into the September books. We've got a big uh, September fashion-centric digital cover and a big package or that is something true to Glamour's heart around fashion coming out. So stay tuned for that. I think everybody will enjoy it. We're deep in planning. We're doing a money podcast with women and money as well. Um, that should be coming out in the autumn, fall. And then also we're deep in planning for Women of the Year, which will be, we'll have, we're, we're doing events on the lead up, but the actual summit for where people buy tickets, that's in um, November 9th in New York. And then November 10th is the actual awards night. Are tickets on sale yet? They will be on sale on August 1st. And they can find that at Glamour.com? Yeah. Uh, GlamourWomenOfTheYear.com is the standalone site, but if you go to Glamour.com, you'll be able to find them. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, so yeah, and like, oh yeah, sorry, sorry. And then also because we've been, we have been talking about finances and money mm-hmm. so uh, aggressively, one of the things that we wanted something tangible that could people could hold on to. So we did this whole package around that extra 10K. So oh, right, yes. how do you get that extra 10K? How do you negotiate for it? What's the side hustle that you can mm-hmm. do for 10K? To your point earlier, when you talked about happiness, we actually did some, we talked to a lot of people about what's that 10K bracket that people are happiest mm-hmm. on and with. So you can check out that 10K package on Glamour. And that's on the video series? We have a video series around mm-hmm. that as well. And we have a video series around what women spend their money on called Honest Accounts. Yep. And so we t- uh, women take us through what they've spent money on. The first one was interesting. One of the first ones we had up on the site was she took us through I think she was making maybe in the range of like 40 50,000 a year and she was like I spent $400 a month on weed and it's my favorite purchase so we go through <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly happiness. right so we go through and that's really honestly quite quite insightful and fascinating and we talk to everybody from somebody that earns like 28 grand freelance to somebody that's in the high six figures so um, it's an interesting to see what those women spend their money on
Well, I love to see you uh, having those conversations about money and giving people the opportunity to think through what they want from it. That's what we're trying to do here too. So thanks a million. Thank you for your time, Sam Barry. So nice to meet you. You too. Lovely to meet you. Take care. That was the wonderful Samantha Barry of Glamour. Samantha, thank you for your time. I had a lot of fun talking to you. Ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, if you really enjoy this podcast, and I think you might, please share it with a friend. It means a whole lot to us and really helps to get the word out. If you have a moment, also go to iTunes or the app on which you listen to this. Leave a nice review. Tell people I'm a semi-intelligent, respectful, sometimes funny person. That'd be helpful. Also, my comedy EP, again, is available on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon, and a whole bunch of other places. It's called Alive on the Upper West Side. Check it out. Post it on social media. Share it with your friends. Sit around and laugh while you drink a natural light. I don't know. Have a great day. See ya.